The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. I'm very blessed by the Lord when He allows me to rub shoulders with seasoned holiness. And uh, I just want to publicly say I, I personally receive that when I'm around Brad and Deb. And uh, I, I'm very grateful that the Lord has brought you into my life and into this class. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you. The handout today is very minimalistic and perhaps a little unhelpful, but there's a lot of white space for you to take notes. I I'm, I pray the Lord will graciously show up. I don't know where he will choose to meet you today. Um, I feel like in my drive to get through the whole Old Testament in two years, um, there's great benefits to flyovers. Last week we took a little extended time to walk in a valley and up to a mountain. Um, I'm much more comfortable there than in the flyover realm. But sometimes the flyovers are necessary and I pray that the Lord would meet us even amidst the 30,000 foot view today. Pray with me. None of us in this room are worthy of glory. So not to us, but to your name, give it. Exalt yourself in our midst today. I know there's a number of heavy hearts. I pray you'd take that heaviness and make it hopeful. There's some broken hearts here today. I pray you'd take that brokenness and begin healing. I thank you that you are faithful, Lord. You call us to be holy because you are holy. Now enable what you command. In Christ we ask. Amen. Here's last week. Summary. It was actually my last slide. I never got to it. So here it is. Through substitutionary atonement. That act by which sin is addressed 
forgiveness is secured, God's wrath is appeased, either on a sinner or on a substitute. And we're focused here on the substitute element. When God, by His love, calling us to enjoy a relationship with Him, to know His presence, which is intruding into space and time, and in the end will appear in all of its brightness, and those who have not experienced the glory of having a substitute take that wrath will experience His fire upon themselves, and that will be consuming upon their souls for eternity. We call it hell. But for those who experience substitutionary atonement, we are made one with God, at one with Him. Relationship is established, reconciliation secured. And through substitutionary atonement, something happens. God's zeal, which is glowing in its beauty, His zeal for His holiness, His zeal against sin, comes down and consumes that substitute. It brought death to Christ, God's zeal against sin and His passion for His own holiness. A death should have been brought upon us is brought on Him. But what we're told in Leviticus is that sparks from that judgment experience, that fiery presence, sparks somehow shoot over and ignite new fires in our soul, new passions for His holiness, new zeal against sin. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And with respect to what we're talking about, what that means is, among those who are drawn near to me through the substitutionary work of Christ, my dying in Him, my old man crucified with Him, I enjoy His resurrection and something new is birthed in my soul. New desires for God that I never had before. A new direction toward God that I was not going in. Among those who are near me, I will be displayed as holy. And that's my hope today. I woke up with that hope in my soul that God would work in me in a way that would overcome my selfishness, overcome my pride, overcome my self-reliance, all my proneness to wander, to frustration, to sullenness. My proneness to allow my heart to be deceived toward satisfactions that are not pure. Trusting that God in Christ would allow His Spirit, His glory presence to work through Christ and birth something new in my soul. And I wake up hopeful today because He's for me and not against me. He's for you and not against you. We gain new Godward desires leading to a holy life and victory over sin. We're granted blood-bought power, which is the only kind that can conquer sin. And God is displayed as holy in us because we've been brought near to Him in Jesus. That was last week. So this is the first step 
Step one, I've got three steps today in our pursuit of holiness. Step one in our pursuit of holiness is to celebrate past grace. That's how the book is framed. It begins with a focus on past grace. This is like a foundation upon which we stand called the cross. And Leviticus is portraying the cross through a picture, a parable, all those sacrifices. Drawing near to God through the substitutionary work of Christ. So listen to how Paul talks about not the picture in Leviticus, but the reality bound up in Jesus. We know that our old man was crucified with him. That's the substitute element. The lamb is unblemished. We put our hands on the lamb in the Old Testament. It becomes us. And our old man is then taken to the altar and dies. Our old man was crucified with Christ. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Done away with. That's not who I am anymore. And if I see those old traits rising up in my soul, I have to identify them, repent, and run back to the Lord. So that the old man, that body of sin, who I was in Adam, might be done away with no longer, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, set free. I pray every one of you in this room is set free today. Don't listen to the lies of Satan that say you're enslaved and can't get out. This sin is too big. It's too set into your soul. It's a lie. No longer enslaved if Christ has done his work. Because one who has died has been justified from sin. Justified from sin. So look at how that works. But now that you've been justified, so that's, we looked at the text last week, you've been washed, such were some of you. Don't be, don't be, how does Paul put it, 1 Corinthians 6, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Those who practice the filthiness of the world will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you've been washed, that's purified, first step in atonement. You've been sanctified, consecrated, that's the second step of atonement. You've been justified, the final result of atonement. You're set right, standing, accepted by God. Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ has been on our behalf. The unblemished sacrifice. Our sins going on to him. His righteousness all ours. And those who've been justified from sin, something happens, Paul said. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get, it's like you're a new tree and it just poof. Love comes out. Not perfectly overnight, no. No but progressively. And the fact that it's love is evidence, exhibit A, that indeed you're a new creation. God is going to be the great gardener at the end of the day. That is the day of the Lord. At the end of the day of the Lord, 
at the final end, he will come out and examine his vineyard. All he's got to do is look for fruit. If he sees that there's been love on your tree, it's evidence that you're alive in Christ. The fruit doesn't make the tree alive, it just proves that it was alive. Some trees will be loaded, some will just have one pair, but it's alive. And that's all God's looking for. Is there real evidence? And yet there's a bunch of trees in this world that have actually taped apples on. They didn't produce them from the inside. And Christ will know. He will know. But the fruit that you get, if, if, you, if this atonement has actually happened, there's going to be fruit or new igniting in your soul. The fruit you get is sanctification. That's growth in holy conduct. And step one is celebrating past grace. That's the first step in the growth of holy conduct, according to Leviticus. And this says, oh yes, you won't have any sanctification unless you're justified. It's the fruit of being justified. So it's step one. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and the end, eternal life. And that's our goal. And it's part of the blood-bought promises that have been secured for us that we put our hope in. Looking to past grace forces us to turn our eyes to future grace. And that's what helps us wake up in the morning. Not just what Christ has done, but what He's promised to do. That when the burdens of life seem too great, I hold on to not just what Christ has done in my past, but what He's promised to be for me. A help. Not because of who I am and because I deserve it, but because of what Christ has been and because of what He deserved. And now I'm in Him and so I receive it. And I claim it. I put my faith in future grace. Ultimately climaxing in eternal life. So here's, here's where our flyover begins. We've covered step one. Now I'm going to fill in a bunch of little details in the Leviticus. And I pray the Lord will be gracious to help me as I've prepared some details that's going to be very fast. For any of you who would like my chapter on Leviticus, my Old Testament survey's coming out in June, praise the Lord. And my chapter on Leviticus just, I think, in a very clear way, helps unpack all this, and I'd be happy to email it to you if you want more. The Day of Atonement. You know that that's right in the middle of Leviticus, chapter 16. We've covered the sacrifices in the past, but why do we need an extra Day of Atonement? You'll remember that all those sacrifices began with hands being placed on an animal. I'm the sinner, now the unblemished animal becomes contaminated with my sin as a representative of my sin. It all of a sudden embodies me, and then it gets slaughtered. And all of that blood is going to be sprinkled throughout all that contaminated blood 
sin-wrought blood is going to be sprinkled throughout the tabernacle. Let me just read what I have and then I'll catch up to where I was just starting to lecture. Annual sacred day where the community declared Yahweh's holiness and their sinfulness and collectively repented from the sins of the entire previous year. The priest would need atonement for his own yearly sins. So what he would have is a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, whereas the people would get two goats plus the ram. So we have this tabernacle. And in the center of the left-hand side is the Ark of the Covenant representing the throne of God. And in the center of the right side is the, is the altar where sin is addressed. And the only way you can enter in to enjoy fellowship with the great king is through the sacrifice. Now the contaminated beast would get slaughtered throughout the year. And his blood would be sprinkled on the altar. And then the priests would take it into the holy place. And the blood would be sprinkled on the altar of incense and on the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. It's contaminated blood. And what it's doing is proving to God that his wrath has been appeased. But what's also happening in the process of appeasement is that there is this progressive buildup of contamination. And if the contamination does not get resolved, it will turn into pollution. And so what happens on the Day of Atonement is that instead of a contaminated lamb... Hand imposition is what it's called. The hands are placed on the head of the beast and it becomes me. It becomes my, I'm contaminated with sin. The beast becomes contaminated. On this day, after the bull is sacrificed for the priest, one goat is taken for the entire community and that includes the priest. But this goat, no hand imposition is placed on this goat. It's clean blood, not contaminated blood. It doesn't ever get called upon this goat as representative. It's pure and undefiled. And it gets slaughtered. And then that blood, but it's uncontaminated blood, gets sprinkled on the altar and gets taken into the holy place and sprinkled on the altar of incense. And then this time and only this time during the year, the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies and sprinkles the uncontaminated blood on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now the uncontaminated blood appears to operate like a sponge, soaking in all the contamination that had been built up through the your and my contaminated blood through the year. It soaks it up. And then we've got another goat. So it's like the two become one, these two goats. 
The one goat is slaughtered, but it's not contaminated with sin. It actually soaks up, its blood soaks up all of the contaminated blood in the picture that's being portrayed. And then the second goat does have hand imposition. But now what you're declaring, the sins that are being brought on that, is the buildup of all the contamination that's now been sucked into the pure blood. And all of a sudden, all of that contamination that's now been addressed in the sanctuary is now forced on, simply by, by the example, by, by the picture, they declare all of the sins of all the people for all the year are put on this goat. And it's not going to be slaughtered. Because then the contamination problem would happen. But this goat now represents all the sins of all the people, but only for one year. And it's sent outside the camp to wander until it dies. And all those sins are taken far away, never to be seen again, never to encounter the presence of God again. Gone. Lastingly gone. That's the picture. But they have to redo it every single year. Because ultimately the blood of bulls and goats is just a picture. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away the sins that people have done. And so God in his forbearance had passed over the sins formerly committed Romans 3, 25. He had passed over the sins formerly committed in order knowing, planning that Christ would come. And in Him, God is found to be just and the justifier of all who believe. He's only just to forgive real sin if, if a real person dies for that sin. Everything in the Old Testament was a picture pointing to a greater reality and the real has come in Christ. So the goat that runs, that is sent out into the wilderness is often called the scapegoat. One who takes on himself the blame of others. We still use that term today at times. So the use of uncontaminated blood, no hand in position to absorb the contaminated blood of the last year, thus purging sin from sacred space and sacred people. We won't understand this, the picture, very well unless we understand a holiness continuum. And it's at least a start toward understanding Leviticus. I'm not sure yet if it's the best picture, but I'm going to unpack the picture. And it will at least take a step helping you move toward understanding this book. The priests were told, you're to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. My proposal is that we don't have four distinct categories. We have two big categories, the holy and the common. And those are the categories that are in capital letters on the, on the chart. The holy and the common are in capitals. And things are either holy or they're common. And what is common is either clean or unclean.
And the way that it's, it works is that holy is a portrait of God. It's that which is utterly distinct and representative of Him. God is holy and anything that's attached to Him is holy. To be unclean is to be the opposite of God who is life. To be unclean is a picture of death or chaos. So things like menstruation and the birth of children are going to, or even sexual intercourse, are considered unclean at some level. And people think it's most likely because of the bodily fluids that are coming forth. The idea is that the body contains the fluids in order to enjoy life. And it's the loss of those fluids that's a picture of life is being removed and death is coming. And everyone, what is normal is clean. What is holy is only enjoyed by grace. You're not born holy, you're declared holy. And then you become holy by the help of God. Contagious is the opposite side, sorry, unclean is the opposite side. And uncleanness is contagious. So you might be clean and all of a sudden you rub shoulders with the unclean, you become unclean. You move from, notice at the top I've got capital letters, sacrifices for sin or washings for ritual impurity. You move from the unclean or common, you move from the common spectrum to the holy spectrum through a process of either sacrifice or washing. Washings for ritual level issues, all the pageantry of Israel, all their clean and unclean foods, no bacon if you were a Jew, bacon if you're a Christian. (laughs) Sin and ritual impurity moves you this way toward death. Sacrifices and washings move you this way toward life within the picture. And the process from unclean to clean is called cleansing or purification. The process from common to holy is called sanctification or consecration. Remember when I talked about atonement, I said the two parts of atonement were purification and consecration. That's what you see on the top of the chart with the arrows pointed this way. That which might have holy status can actually become contaminated, profaned, where what is holy gets moved down to a common state. What is clean can become polluted and become unclean. So I hope you can get a sense for how the diagram's working. Cleanness is the normal state or condition of creatures. It's how God makes the world. It's a clean world. Holiness is the absolute, is the portrays absolute order and is enjoyed only by grace. So God is holy and all that belongs to him is holy, whether it's the tabernacle, its equipment, the Sabbath and religious festivals, the priests, or even at a general level, the people. 
I've called you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And here's the challenge. And we see this even wrestling with Leviticus. All of Israel is a holy people. But when it says that, what it means is they have a status of holiness. God has set apart Israel from the nations. Their status is holy, but the challenge for them and the challenge for us is to see our holiness more than status, but to become state. By that I mean to see a condition of holiness shaped in our hearts. When Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is God's will for your life, church, your sanctification. Or when Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, I want all of you to be holy in your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. He's not talking about a holy status that somehow we acquire. No, that's declared over us. We are holy in Christ already. You have been washed. You've been sanctified, period. It's done, accomplished in Christ. You've been justified. But the call is to begin to see worked out in our own condition, in our own actions, in our desires and thoughts, who we are already by status. I have a role that started six years ago, six and a half years ago, six and a half years ago, as a Sunday school teacher in this class. But I've recognized something happened progressively. While I had the status of teacher bestowed upon me six years ago, I haven't become a shepherd of your hearts. It didn't happen immediately, and it's still gradually happening, where I'm becoming more a pastor to some of you. You can have a title and it not be manifest in your life. And it's a great honor for me to be able to for your souls, be a shepherd, to be a pastor. And it happens progressively through relationship. And I count it a remarkable privilege and a very high responsibility. The call here for holiness is not just to say, I'm in, but to see life become more and more like Christ's. Holy and common, within the common, clean and unclean. Unclean is a substandard state or condition acquired by bodily process or sin. It represented death or that which was abnormal and out of order. It could be imparted simply by contact. Two kinds that we read about in Scripture, in Leviticus. There's tolerated uncleanness. Tolerated doesn't mean it was a burden. It was just still considered unclean. God gave sex as a gift, but it nevertheless required a ceremonial bath afterwards before you could go encounter the holy. It's intriguing when Israel met God at Mount Sinai 
He said three things have to happen. Wash all your clothes, and that outward activity would be representative of my call to inward purity. Don't touch the mountain, because I'm holy, and you need to guard yourself from that holiness. I'm like a nuclear reactor. I'll keep you alive, but don't mess with me. And then the third thing, very intriguingly, husbands don't have sex with your wives in these three days before I show up. And I think it's because I'm the real. I've given you a picture, but you're going to meet the real. So I don't want you to get bogged down by the picture these three days. Let your hungers and your desires overflow with an enraptured passion to see me, to know me. But only for three days, and then you can enjoy your wife again. Or your husband. Tolerated uncleanness is what we usually think of as the ritual stuff. The... the, the, I just lost my word. The, uh, the pictures, the, what's the word? Uh, no, not there. Um, it's all of Israel's pageantry, everything related to the tabernacle and all the clean and unclean laws and all of the symbol. That's what I was thinking. That was the word. Simple word? Symbol, all those symbolic stuff, the tolerated uncleanness. So this still resulted in an exile from the community, an exile from the presence of God, as it were. The temple is a, the tabernacle is a picture of the Garden of Eden, and, and you're separated from fellowship in the Garden of Eden as long as you're unclean. So menstrual blood, bodily emissions, leprous or dead-looking skin, contact with a corpse... God wants you to care for the body. I just had the picture. When I was pastoring in Indiana, I got called to the hospital. Got there five minutes after this sweet woman. I think her name was Ruth. Her husband had just died. Three years of battling Alzheimer's and he was laying on his bed and His spirit had gone to be with the Lord, but his body was still there. And she just sat there, and I came into the hospital room, and she had her hand on his leg. And I put my hand on her hand, and I prayed with her. That's right. But it nevertheless would have made her unclean in the Old Testament. And she would have needed to have gone through a process of ritual bathing. Why? Just to remind us that God is not about death. He's about life. And one day death will be overcome. It's a temporary enemy. And for me to enjoy a relationship with him means I need to remember that. That this is opposite from who he is, ultimately. But they didn't have to do a do a um, sacrifice for sin. 
It was just a bath. Unless the way that you moved to prohibited uncleanness, tolerated uncleanness could become prohibited in this sense if you did not follow the procedures that were called upon for the ritual cleansing all of a sudden it would get elevated to the point of an actual sin. Because you were disobedient to the Holy God. So if you were in the middle of your period and you went to the temple, that would be considered conscious violation against God. Prohibited uncleanness was moral sin. It resulted in exile and very often death, incest, adultery, spiritualism. And uh, God takes such things seriously. We should die for such things. And he provides a substitute. Oh boy. I just want your hearts to be encouraged. All this is still considering past grace. But let me just go through these quick. In the new covenant, impurity still makes one unfit for access to God. It's the pure in heart alone who will see God. Jesus stressed that washing washing was required to enjoy relationship with him. No, Jesus, don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. Well, then wash my whole body. No, I don't need to do that. You're already clean, Peter. You're already clean. The new creational kingdom, what we're anticipating in that future glory... No more pain, no more tears. This is how it's described. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Notice it's the Lamb's book through which the cleansing comes. So this is really cool. A student last year drew this to my attention in a paper. So I'm unpacking Dustin Schrammick's paper. Some of you know Dustin. He's one of our global partners. Jesus reversed the effects of sin and defilement in ways unknown to the Old Testament. So you remember I said uncleanness is contagious. If what is clean, a good apple, gets placed into the middle of a bunch of bad apples, the picture in the Old Testament is definitely the bad apples won't get better. It'll make the good apple bad. It's the yucky that's contagious until you meet Jesus. Immediate cleansing to the man with leprosy. If you read Leviticus 14, it says an elaborate bathing ritual. Then you offer a sacrifice. You do a whole bunch of washing. And then you have to wait an entire week before you can enter the camp. Jesus meets the leprous guy. He, cleanses, he, he heals him. The leprosy is gone. And then it says in the text, he was clean. 
Jesus was on a mission to destroy uncleanness. He casts out the unclean spirits, he throws them into a bunch of pigs, and sends them down a mountain to die. He's destroying uncleanness in his mission. There was a woman with a blood flow. Because of her problem with the blood unstopped, the doctor's unable to stop her, she was, we have to read this, she was in a sustained state of uncleanness, which meant for over a decade she'd been unable to go to the temple and worship her God in the presence of others. And she reaches out and touches the clean one. And rather than her uncleanness making Jesus through being contagious, making him unclean, power shoots out of him, this power that has an ability to reverse the uncleanness, and she gets cleansed head to toe. And Jesus doesn't get defiled in the least. Rather than her uncleanness having a polluting effect, his touch was contagious with cleanness. Jesus overcame the ultimate source of defilement. Mark chapter 5, death. That's the ultimate end. That's the ultimate uncleanness. And he enters into Jairus' daughter. And rather than him becoming polluted... He just raises her up. He reverses the uncleanness. That's where ultimately uncleanness takes you to death. And he has the power to reverse the trajectory. The continuum with Jesus moves away from uncleanness. And he sucks it back and brings lasting life. C.S. Lewis described in Chronicles of Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right at the, um, the table, the the stone table, he describes there how the deeper magic was that if one would sacrifice himself for another, then death would be placed in reverse. So everything is moving in chaos toward death, and all of a sudden, if one stands in and receives that wrath, all of a sudden, death gets put in reverse, and Jesus is that person. How does he do it? This is very cool. I hadn't considered this before, so this is Brother Dustin. Baptism, number one. One of the key images of baptism is that it's for purification and cleansing. It's not the only image. It's also representative of drowning. That is death. Our old man is dead. Is dead. That's Romans 6. But in Acts chapter 22 and 1 Peter 3, Baptism is portrayed as a cleansing rite. Now what's very striking about that is Jesus underwent a baptism for repentance of sin. That's how John the Baptist described it in Matthew chapter 3. And Jesus had no sin. So the proposal is that very likely Jesus' baptism was was designed also as substitution, as representation for the washing that you and I needed in order to enjoy cleansing. So he underwent the baptism as a representative washing and then ultimately in his death it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses from all sin. 
And in the Old Testament, many of the uncleannesses not only needed the washing, they also needed the sacrifice. And Jesus performs both. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we've got a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, hear that word? Draw near to God. How? With a true heart and full assurance of faith, future orientation, believing all that's been bought for us, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All of it happening in our identification with Jesus. Well, that was interesting. Okay. So let us draw near. Lives overflowing in holiness. Time being up. Next week, what I'm going to do, if the Lord grants, is I'll, I'll go through this quick summary of what holiness, holy conduct looked like in Leviticus, and then I'll unpack the last two steps that are presented in this book for how you and I can overcome our sin. And then, if the Lord grants, we'll start Numbers. Um, let me just go. Just look at the top one. We're going to cover the second one next week. Step one, celebrate past grace. Let that become implanted on your heart. If you feel that God is far from you, the answer is Christ. If you feel he's distant, you can experience his presence as hopeful and as sanctifying and as nurturing only through Christ. You want to draw near, you want him near to you. You feel like he's far off. The answer is a deep sense of your own sin that will leave you, lead you to treasure in the work of Christ. And it's a real work. It's a purifying work. It's consecrating work and the result is true true acceptance with God we call it justification past grace isn't where it ends but it's where it begins let's pray not to us O Lord but to your name give glory make much of Christ in this place he's worthy of our worship Help our broken hearts, our needy hearts. Fill areas of emptiness with your love. Take senses of hopelessness and replace them with hope. Take out that ugliness in our soul and bring cleansing and growth. Thank you that you are a healer. You're a contamination reverser all that sickness all that ugliness that we've seen with our eyes that we've tasted with our mouths that we've 
touched with our hands, all of it can be gone by the grace and power of Christ. The old man dead. Let people in this room experience freedom today. A freedom of blood-bought forgiveness. A freedom of blood-bought righteousness. And may that past grace move them to greater levels of holy conduct for your fame, for their good. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and Treasuring a God who Rules, Saves, and Satisfies through Covenant for His Glory in Christ.